Hello, everyone, and welcome. Hey, Great. how you doing? Good. Good to see everyone. It's exciting. Um, Hi, George. We've got a real treat for you guys tonight. Hi, Kristen. So, guys, this is what's happening at the moment. Um, there's one million visas that still haven't been processed since COVID started. And uh, the Albanese government, I think, about fast-tracking a lot of that and fixing this. And the question I've got is where will the hundreds of thousands of new immigrants live when there's already a chronic shortage of rental homes in Australia? You know, in tents or the streets, because we've already got a shortage and it's become so bad, there's people living in hotels and at their friends' couches and things like that. But if you think we had a rental crisis, it's going to turn into Australia's rental dystopia if uh, this happens. So it's pretty crazy at the moment. Um, so I think the rental vacancy is going to tighten up even more, but not only that, rents are going to go up even more, which sounds pretty crazy, which is not going to help inflation because rents going up doesn't help inflation at all. So guys, what I'm going to do now, I think everyone's here and welcome Freedom Fighters, Freedom Tribe. Hi, Charmaine. Hi, Clay. Hi, Andrew. Hi, George. Excellent. So I'd like to introduce Derek McManus. And what I'm going to do is just give you a brief overview. Derek McManus is an ex-sniper. He's a recovery diver, and he was trained by the SAS in counter-terrorist tactics. He operated in the South Australian Police Elite Special Task and Rescue, which is called the Star Force. And he actually went on scene once, and he got shot. 14 times in less than five seconds and was lying there for three hours. It's a pretty incredible story. And, you know, so fortunate, Derek, you're here to tell the story as well. And, you know, I'd love to hear the story about what happened and, you know, and everything else like that. Who was this guy and why did you have to go and go out to him? Yeah, I'm curious. Can you tell us the story, please? Sensational, yeah. And uh, let me just tell you, um, anybody who has questions at any time, because this is a Zoom and we can be more interactive, um, feel free to put your hand up and George and Christina will manage it. And uh, if you've got a question that's burning, please ask it at the time. So, yeah, yeah, so with, the, with the questions, ladies and gentlemen, please type them in the chat and then Lisa will moderate the questions once we're finished because I don't want to wreck the flow. And then we're going to go through Q&A. It's going to be great. Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay. Um, so Star Group um, are a designated section of the police department designated to deal with high-risk incidents in South Australia, whether it's um, terrorist incidents, whether it's high-risk arrests, whether it's hostage siege, uh, we are designated to deal with them and we are trained to deal with them. When we were they formed? Them. When were they formed? Like 1978 they were formed. They okay, were formed. yep. That's when Star Group were formed. There was another uh, unit within the police prior to that, but this was formed um, to formally and it was a full-time basis before it was a part-time basis. And that was in response to a bombing in Sydney. Uh, and it was a terrorist bombing in Sydney. So every state in, in Australia got units on the same at the same time. Um, so we were formed in 1978, uh, and it's an elite unit to the extent that when we join, we are design, we, you know, I am the 132nd person to join that section. Uh, I'm not, not sure what number they're up to now, but it's still under 200. Mm. Um, and whenever we communicate, we sign off with um, number 132 because it's that important to us. Um, and it's kind of that elite type tag. So 
that's the type of unit that it is. We were asked to go and arrest this guy because he had made threats to shoot police in the past. Wow, uh, he, okay. Yep. He'd never done anything of violence, but we knew that there was the potential. But um, did you know he had weapons or anything or? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and there's a long, oh boy, there are so many stories we could get into, George. Um, there's a long history behind him having the weapons, uh, but we he had weapons, we took them off of him, the courts gave it back to them. Wow. Um, we took the weapons back off, but we only got half the weapons mm-hmm. because he'd hidden them. So we knew there was a potential for him to still have the weapons. Um, we went there, uh, we were dressed in full police blue uniform. We were wearing f- what we call flak vests. Um, most people know the term bulletproof vest, but I can tell you right now, they ain't bulletproof. Um, but uh, we went there, we knocked, we called, there was no answer. However, we had one of our snipers sitting in the bush for about the last 20 minutes watching the house. Mm-hmm. We knew he was inside. We knew he should answer the door. So we knocked again, we called again, again, no answer. At this stage, I've gone down the side of the house to see whether we can make entry through a secondary door which was going to be faster, more effective, more efficient and safer. Uh, But as I got to within about two feet of that sliding door, he saw me, he started shooting, I was his target. He fired 18 times with a Chinese military rifle um, and it was the same bullets that the Chinese use when they go to war. He fired 18 times, he hit me 14 times with either bullets or shrapnel. Um, And I sustained multiple massive life-threatening injuries uh, to the extent that my left forearm was hit with one bullet and it broke the bone, the main bone in two places and severed the main artery. In my right wrist, a piece of shrapnel lodged in my ulnar artery uh, and severed that artery as well. I had two bullets in my stomach. Those two bullets um, perforated both the small and the large intestine, but they didn't hit a kidney, a spleen, a heart, or you know any of those other major organs. Uh, there were two bullets that hit my left thigh and I lost about 30% of the muscle in my left thigh as a result of that. Uh, and one bullet went through my right Achilles tendon and took out about 80% of the thickness of my Achilles tendon for about an inch, inch and a half. Now I have to ask you a question. What is, what are the first, I mean, I'm assuming it's the first time you've been shot and last time you've been shot. <laughs> what, what does it feel like that first bullet hitting you? Do you actually feel it or what happens there? I can tell you right now, no. I I have no idea what it felt like to be hit with the first bullet. Um, The first, I can tell you the first 12 hits, I don't actually remember at all. Mm -hmm. Um, There's only two bullets that I can remember hitting me, uh, and they are the last two bullets. The The first lot of bullets, as they were hitting me, I didn't feel the impact, I didn't feel any pain, I didn't even hear the sound, or and I probably did, but my mind just probably blocked it out. Mm-hmm. I don't remember hearing it at the time, but I remember falling to the ground, just consciously falling to the ground and being a very particular, careful, precise type star group officer. I started abusing myself. How the hell could I be falling? There's no reason. So I'm just abusing myself. Uh, and as I'm falling to the ground, kind of in slow motion, I look at the glass sliding door that I was going to assess and there's small round holes that hadn't been there before. And then I hear the sound of gunfire somewhere in the distance behind it. Um, and as I'm falling, I'm going, okay, small round holes, sound of gunfire, still can't feel pain. I haven't felt any impact. 
but rationally, I must be getting shot. And so as I'm falling to the ground, having been abusing myself, before I hit the ground, I actually start saying to myself, Derek, don't be too hard on yourself. If you're getting shot, it's quite acceptable to fall over. Wow. That is literally what happened in my mind at that time. Uh, but I fell to the ground, landed on my back, my feet pointing directly where the bullets are coming from, my head facing away. And this is when those two bullets hit me that I can remember. This is when time slowed right down. These two bullets fired in the space of time like that, but they seemed to take 30 seconds. The first one hit me and it was like a sledgehammer just driving into my thigh. And then a shockwave went up through my body all the way through to the top of my head. And then that shockwave came back down. And then the second bullet hit. And again, it's that sledgehammer. Shockwave up, shockwave back down. Seemingly 30 seconds, but it literally was that, uh, that, that long because 18 bullets were fired in less than five seconds. Um, when these two bullets hit, again, it seemed to be 30 seconds. So I had time to start abusing myself again. Mm -hmm. How could I possibly be so stupid as to just lie here and accept being shot. I knew I needed to fire back. Um, and, and this is just an example of how much thinking you can do in a short space of time if you're well prepared for what you might encounter. So as I've lined up to fire back, um, I'm abusing myself. How can I lie here and just accept being shot? But as I lined up to fire back, I realized I was firing back along the length of my legs. And at the other end of my legs are my feet. And when you're lying on your back, which way do your feet point? Up. Up in the air. I knew that I had to get up just a little bit, but I've got a flat vest on, I've got weaponry, I've got equipment on my upper body. And as I've lifted my upper body up, my feet have come up to counterbalance. And the thought that ran through my head was I better not shoot myself in the foot because the guys at work will give me shit for the rest of my <laughs> life. Wow. And I don't embellish that story at all. Um, that's exactly what I thought. And people say, how could you have that level of cognition in such a moment of panic? And this is where I talk about having some idea of what we're going to deal with, some idea of how we're going to deal with it. The better prepared we are, the better plans we have in place, the better we know what those plans are. It's okay to have a plan over here, but if you don't understand what that plan is and how to implement it, it's useless to you. So I knew I may get shot and injured. I may even get shot and killed. So when I realized that, I actually went away and said, if I get shot and I don't die, what would be my perfect response? And I had that response in place. Um, and four things that I knew I needed to do. The first one was control panic. Don't let panic take control of the situation. I had to keep my mind clear enough and conscious enough of everything that's happening around me so that I can respond to it rather than react to it. Um, and the easiest way to control panic is to have that plan in place, have trained that plan so that it's easy to deal, deal with. And people say, well, Derek, you were in Star Group. I'm never going to get to train at that level. But what I say to that is that I trained for what I could realistically expect to encounter in my life. I made a choice to go into police. I made a choice to go into Star Group. I made a choice to become a sniper. I went and trained with the SAS in counter-terrorism. It was real reality for me to say, I may be shot and injured in that environment. Whenever anybody makes a choice, we need to take responsibility on four levels, right? We need to take responsibility for the choice itself. We need to take responsibility for our behaviors or our actions. 
we then need to take responsibility for consequence and then the future after that consequence. Now, when most people have these conversations about you've got to take responsibility for your consequences, it's about the negative consequences. Okay, this went wrong. Okay, let's analyze it. Let's let's uh, see what we can do about making sure this doesn't happen again. Um, and that's very important. We need to be able to analyze what went wrong so we can avoid it. More important, when we talk about the, well, bad, uh, when we talk about that consequence, we need to take responsibility for the negative, but more importantly, let's start taking responsibility for the positive. When things go well, let's take a, a seat and analyze what did we do and how can we repeat that behavior, okay? We don't do that often enough. Take responsibility for the good stuff that happens and then put a process in place that we can repeat that. You asked me whether I'd ever been shot before. Never been shot before. Have I faced incidents with guns? Absolutely, I have. And drawing on that previous experience and going, what went well in that situation that I can take into this one was absolutely vital to me. Little insight into the previous situation, and there's been several, but this one in particular, um, a really long story short, we pulled a car over, man driving, female in the passenger seat, drugs on the centre console, uh, we got them out of the car, we went to search the car, and as we were about to search the car, the guy has pulled out a pistol, pointed the pistol at my partner's chest and started pulling the trigger. It didn't fire because the pistol was broken. Wow. Okay? It actually had to be cocked. The hammer had to be pulled back. We got into a wrestling match with this guy, and as we were wrestling to try and control the pistol, he's calling out to his girlfriend, cock the gun, cock the gun. She has clambered over this wrestling match and she has cocked the weapon. As she's cocked the weapon, I've put my thumb between the hammer and the gun to hold the hammer back and stop it firing. Now, what I did was I sat down and I said, what did we do well? How do we manage to be able to control ourselves and be able to consciously, um, deliberately have this wrestling match with him and then still be rational enough to put my thumb in there? What was my thinking? behind that and how can I take that forward? So we need to take responsibility for our consequences, both the negative and the positive. And the more we take responsibility for the, the positive, the more we'll be able to repeat them. But it's taking responsibility for those four things uh, prior to you even making that choice to start taking that action. Uh, Eric, I, I can't believe there's people like that out there. You know, you see it in the movies and you know, you watch Underbelly, but wow, like people just actually trying to shoot a police officer point blank. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and it's in South Australia. People don't think that these sorts of things happen in South Australia. Um, but, uh, you know, they do. And fortunately, um, we get training to be able to manage these things. I'm not sure that every police officer thinks about it to the detail that I do, which really disappoints me. Uh, because I think we can be better prepared to deal with these things. And picking up on stuff that you and I have discussed in the past, it's not just about the physical preparation. It's about the mental preparation and the emotional preparation as well. Because we, if we can manage our emotions, we've got more chance of being able to manage our physical, making better decisions, taking better action, because our emotions are not completely out of control. Derek, Derek, um, I'd like to touch on the subject of emotions. Because... Yeah, please. You know, over the last 25 years investing, one thing I find 
his emotions are always running, you know, um, really hot or really cold when it comes to property investing. And what happens is, you know, property's going up and everyone's like, oh my God, I have to get a property straight away. Then properties um, are softened up and everyone's like, oh my God, you should never buy property. And what I try to explain to people is, you know, whenever it's summer, winter's going to follow. And after winter, there's going to be summer. And with properties, it's always like that. There's going to be winter, it's going to be summer, it's going to be winter, it's going to be summer. And at the moment, you know, interest rates going up, the RBA has been pushing them up, you know, rate, rate hikes, property prices have dropped in certain areas, and a lot of people are fearful. And, but the thing is, the people that don't invest, the people that can't control their emotions and allow fear to guide them are going to miss out. And it's a bit like um, during the boom, when people went overboard and overpaid, they're going to miss out as well. Emotions, you've got to keep them out of it. So how do you take away the emotion? How do you do that? Okay. So I'm going to give you a little model that you'll probably be able to use to, uh, for many of your investors. Um, our emotions and our rational thinking generally sit on an even plane in our mind. Um, and when everything's going well, everything's going exactly the way we want, our emotions and rational thinking, they sit there and they just go, we can work together on this. We can debate, we can plan, we can challenge, we can get creative, we can problem solve. But as soon as things start to go out of control and we don't know what to do about it, our emotions start going high and our rational thinking starts going low. And when our rational thinking goes low, this is fight and flight, this is panic, this is... Uh, irrational thinking. I say this is when we do our dumb stuff, not our smart stuff. Now, it's not about uh, taking the emotions out. It's not about saying, I will not get emotional, because we do. We are naturally responsive to things that happen around us. So it's understanding that when our emotions are high and our rational thinking is low, this is not the time to be making big decisions, taking big action. We've got to put things in place to bring our emotions back down and our rational thinking back up. They may never get back onto an even plane, right, until after the situation's over. But the closer we can get them, the more chance we've got of making those rational decisions. Now, there are four things that we need to do to control our emotions um, so that we can make better decisions. The first one is to control panic. Don't let panic take control of the situation. The next one is to control shock. Shock is the effect on the body from physical or emotional uh, psychological injury. And what happens in the brain is that when we go into a situation where we are out of control, massive injuries, massive uh, sudden change in our circumstances, and the emotions go high, our brain actually says, this is time for us not to be thinking, it's time for us to be acting, fight and flight. So there's a little uh, organ on the side of the brain called the amygdala. The amygdala kicks in and says, okay, reroute the blood away from the brain, not all of it, but the majority of it, away from the brain and into the body. And that's primarily the frontal cortex, prefrontal cortex is where the blood, uh, the blood gets drained from. Body says, we don't need to do creative thinking. We don't need to do problem solving. We just need to get out of here or start fighting. If we can control shock, we can help our body relax. That uh, amygdala says, oh, maybe it's not as bad as I thought. It allows blood to come back to the prefrontal cortex and the emotions start coming down and the rational thinking starts coming back up. And Interesting. It's, and, and it's managing that body, or managing that, 
uh, mindset. Very interesting because a lot of media, um, I call it amygdala porn, because there's all this, you know, all this fear happening in news all the time. And that just takes away people's rational thinking, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, and they are playing on our panic. Uh, as you were saying before, the property market's going up, then the media get onto it and say, oh, everybody's missed out, you know, everything's going up, we're going to be in real trouble. And then when the property market is going down, um, the media again get onto it. They just want to sensationalize anything and play on that fear factor. Um, in fact, there was a meme that I read the other day said that uh, if you don't listen to the media, you're uninformed. If you do listen to the media, you're misinformed. Aha, uh -huh. I love that. It's good. Yeah. I got rid of my TV about 20 years ago. I've got a TV, but I don't watch TV yeah. as in, you know, because yeah. news, you know, news or TV, anything like that. I'm, I'm very intentional. And if I want to watch something, I'll watch a movie or something. Yep, absolutely. So the last two. Yep. Uh, so we've got control panic, control shock. The last two are probably the most practical things that we can put into place in those moments of overwhelm. And the first one is to slow down our uh, breathing, right? Now, this, ha this happened to me 30 years ago, almost 30 years ago. Uh, nobody spoke about breathing for relaxation back then, but I was a diver and diving required us to be able to control our emotions and control our breathing so that if we get stuck, we can last longer on our cylinder of air, which is a limited supply. So we had to make sure that lasted as long as possible. But that was also about controlling our emotions as well. I was able to take that information and go, do you know something? I need to use that if I ever get shot too, because I want to control everything. I want to slow down my breathing so that I slow down my bleeding, right? So I slow down my breathing and then slow down my heart rate are the last two. And when we can slow down our breathing, our body actually starts relaxing and the amygdala goes, oh, if he's breathing slowly or she, whatever it might be, uh, if they're breathing slowly, there's obviously no panic here. Okay, I'm going to let the brain, uh, the blood go back into the brain. When it goes back to that prefrontal cortex, we can do problem solving. We can do creative thinking. We can do um, higher executive uh, operations in our brain. Derek, uh, that's amazing because um, I don't know if you've tried ice baths. Yes. And um, so I remember my first ice bath. I was breathing very quickly. Yeah. I found it very difficult. It was crazy painful. And now when I, I bought an ice bath because I knew I was so bad at it. And now I actually had one this morning. Now I just breathe really slow and it actually makes it so much easier. It's amazing. Uh, well, you know, there's the, the Wim Hof breathing method. I haven't looked into it in great depth, uh, but Wim Hof takes people to uh, Everest Base Camp and all sorts of ice bath type challenges. And he says it is the breathing that changes it. Um, as part of my diving, again, we were exposed to extreme, extreme cold. Um, and it was that managing the breathing that helped us to be able to manage that. Uh, so you're, you're a police, police diver, is that right? Police diver, yeah. Yep. What do police divers do? Uh, so our main job is to recover evidence that is thrown into bodies of water. Uh -huh. So dams, rivers, streams, sewerage pits, all that sort of stuff. Uh, we put on the right kit and we will dive into dark water. Uh, but we're also required to go out and do surveys and, and things like that uh, and search for uh, lost ships and lost bodies. So we've got the caves down in Mount Gambier. Um, 
people go cave diving and unfortunately pass away, dive while they're cave diving, um, or they dive into the Murray River and, and die there. And we will spend maybe four to five hours underwater searching for a body. And the water in the Murray is sometimes down to about 11, 10 degrees. Um, and we have to stay in there for that, that extended period. That health, is a long time. Health is, health is monitored and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, and if it does get too bad, we're able to come up. Um, but we are trained to be able to stay down in that depth um, without any problem. I mentioned to you that I'm um, going to the Himalayas. I'm going to be riding my mountain bike in the Himalayas, leaving on the 13th of October. At about 4,000 metres, there is a lake that we are going to pass. I've already said to Pat Yonker, the guy who's taking us, I am going to swim in that lake. Wow, I'm impressed. You're crazy. But George, if you are in an ice bath, that water is probably colder than what's going to be in this lake. It uh, is maybe, a, maybe, yeah. Well, it's not going to be frozen up there, let me tell you. Yeah, 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 yeah. you're right, you're right. Yeah. yeah. So you'll be able to handle it, definitely. Um, so how long's your trek? Where are you riding from? How long's your trek? How big's the group? Uh, we're leaving from uh, Pokahara. Uh, there's 11 riders plus Patrick Yonker. Uh, Pat Yonker is a uh, previous winner of the Tour Down Under, Road 5, Tour de France's, all that sort of stuff. So we've got some really good uh, pedigree in there. We're uh, going to be riding for about 14 days and we're going to go up to 5,500 metres, which is higher than Mount Everest Base Camp. Um, wow. So... Um... Oxygen-wise, it's going to be tough going that high. Absolutely. Rare air up there. Yep. Yeah. So I remember when I was in um, Peru at Machu Picchu, it was very hard to breathe. It was really yeah. like taking a 10-metre walk in low, in rare air is like having a 1K run. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They, um, people who climb Everest, uh, people say, my gosh, you know, how do they do that? But that is preparation. And people know that the last 100 metres of getting to the top of Mount Everest takes about two and a half hours because it is just such hard work to get up there. A hundred metres, two and a half hours. Um, wow. So rare. Um, but we're going to be doing some acclimatisation on the way. This yeah, is about, you've, got 14, you've got 14 days, I suppose, um, which is not long enough, is it? You need three weeks or something, don't you? Uh, to really get acclimatised, yes, you need an extended period of time. But we're going to go up to five and a half thousand metres uh, in probably the first half to just over half, and then the rest of it is coming back down again. So that's going to be okay. But it is all about preparation. I'm uh, going into Next Gen uh, Gym in Adelaide and mm. getting into the altitude room there um, so that I've got some idea. It's not, and I know that it is not going to prepare me for what I'm going to experience, but it's going to give me some insight. Absolutely. It's Absolutely. Just that preparation that gives me that some idea that I won't be overwhelmed. My mind will go, my emotions will go real high, my rational thinking will go low, and then I'll go, no, I've been in this sort of situation before, so the emotions will come back down a lot faster and the rational thinking will come back up. Um, really interesting. We, I spoke about breathing before. When I was in the altitude room, uh, it operates at about 3,500 metres, um, and so there is only about 14% oxygen in the air at that level. Now, Normally we have 21.9% oxygen in the air. So this has now come down to 14%. So it's, it's still plenty enough for us to operate. But my oxygen saturation levels in my blood, because I've got a monitor for that, um, in normal air, 
99 to 100% saturation of blood in my oxygen. Get into the oxygen room, into the altitude room at 14% oxygen, the saturation in my blood comes down to 83 to 86%. Wow. Right now that's still plenty to operate in. And uh, so long as we don't go down below 80, when we're in the Himalayas, it's gonna be fine. Uh, but interestingly, when I did the box breathing, uh, which is recommended by Navy SEALs in America and used by many, many people in athletics, when I did the box breathing, my oxygen saturation in that same environment came back up to 97 to 99%. Very interesting. Just by breathing properly. Yep. Um, look, um, if uh, can you tell us a bit about box breathing? I mean, I do it when I go to the ice bath, but I think everyone would love to learn how to do this. Okay, so box breathing is done, uh, my version of box breathing is done in four second blocks. So it's breathing in for four seconds, breathing, uh, holding it for four seconds, breathing out for four seconds, holding that for four seconds, and then breathing in for four seconds, then out for four seconds. And it's just this routine. And it's not just about the breathing, it's about the mind as well, okay? We've got to breathe and say to ourselves, through this breathing system, I am going to relax my body. I focus on where my pain is at that time. So I can actually get pain in my shoulder, pain in my knee. Um, I'm getting old these days. So every now and then my, my eyes twitch because the muscles get tired or I get a, a, a bouncy muscle because the muscles getting tired from exertion. I'm able to slow my breathing down, box breathe, close my eyes, focus on that area of the body and just completely relax that specific area of the body and reduce the pain as well. Uh, just through that breathing and relaxation process. Yeah, box breathing is amazing. It's it's really good. It's Absolutely. It, so, yep. It would be invaluable for your uh, your ice baths for sure. Absolutely. Um. Now, you got shot two times. You're on the ground. Your feet are in the way. You um, move I'm, I'm up. Just, your feet up. I'm, I'm just going to interrupt here. I got shot fourteen times. Sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm talking the last two times. Yep. Yep. The last two shots. We. You know that you felt. <laughs> you got 14 times, yep, and you're, you've got your gun out. What happens next? I'm just, I want to hear the rest of the story. This is crazy. Okay, so I've got my gun out. I know that my feet are there. I go to fire back. I realize that I need to get up to shoot over the top of my feet. I do fire back and I do miss my feet just for clarity. Um, as I shoot, he stops shooting, right? The, I, I couldn't see him. Uh, I could only hear where the sound of gunfire was coming from. It was dark in the house, light out here, all sorts of um, stuff happening there. Uh, when I fired back, he stopped. I rolled to my right a couple of times. Now, despite the injuries that I've got, um, I've been able to get to my feet and I stagger around the corner. There's a trail of blood on the ground wherever I'm walking. Um, and I only go for about seven or eight metres. My legs start to grow weak and I fall to my knees again. I crawled along on my knees um, for about another two or three meters. Body gets weaker again, and I fell to my hands and knees. Crawl for another two or three meters, and I fall to the ground, rolled onto my back, and that's where I stayed for about the next three hours. For the three hours that I was lying on the ground, I was constantly monitoring my body, monitoring my mind, monitoring where he is and whether he was going to come back and start shooting me again. Um, the, the two arteries in your wrists, I mean, surely would have bled out in three hours. What happened there? 
and and I completely agree with you. Uh, every medical book in history says if you sever an artery, you will die within two to three minutes. You'll just bleed out. Um, the main artery on the left forearm uh, just went into fibrillation. So, it, and as a medical term, it closed off on both ends of its own accord. Now, I'm not the only person that this has ever happened to, so I'm not a miracle man or anything like that, but they did just close off. Doctors can't tell me why it did that. They, they can't. Wow, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, the artery in the right wrist, that was blocked by the piece of shrapnel. After lying on the ground for about two hours, um, I started thinking to myself, this piece of shrapnel in my wrist was starting to annoy me. It was starting to frustrate me, irritate me. It was really getting quite painful. And I just thought rationally, well, it's irritating, but I'm going to pull it out and, and I'm going to get rid of it. And then I'll get rid of that irritation and I'll be able to focus on the important things. Basic training kicked in at this point. And when emotions go high, rational thinking goes low, when things are going wrong in your environment, whether it's the property market, whether it's family, whether it's work, whatever it is, um, when everything starts going out of control, go back to basics is what we are all told. Basic training for me said first aid says leave well enough alone. If you don't need to touch it, wait until you get to hospital um, and let them deal with it. Fortunately, I didn't know I had a severed artery. I just knew I had a piece of shrapnel on my wrist. And I've gone, do you know something? Leave well enough alone. I'll wait until I get to hospital. Fortunately, I did. Because wow. if I had pulled that out, it would have been very different. Now, there's an interesting term in what I've just said. And it's one that most people can relate to. When everything goes out of control, let's go back to basics. Mm -hmm. And that is a term that is used a lot. It has a really good intention. But I'd like to draw people's attention to the fact that going back to basics is too far. Okay? Going back to basics is the first day you start something. It's the first day you start in a new job. When you get the induction, it's the first time you start a new sport, a new relationship. That's where the basics are, right? Most of us are much higher than basics. So what I want people to think about is where is your baseline? The line where you know your performance is 100% reliable. Now, I know that you will have a much higher baseline than most of the people on this call in, in the property market. Their, their level of uh, performance there is, and my level is way down here in the property market. I know very little about it. Um, so we've got to understand where our baseline is. And when things start going wrong, come back to our baseline where we know our performance is 100% reliable. Now, this can also be called your comfort zone because where you're comfortable is where you know that everything you do is going to go exactly the way you want it. It is 100% reliable. You can come and just relax. These are the days that you go to work and you go, I love being here. I love my job. I love what I do. I love this relationship. It's no longer hard work. We understand each other, whatever it might be. So understand where your baseline is. And when things start to go wrong, come back to your baseline. Regain your confidence. And once you start relaxing again and you feel that you've got everything back in control, then you can start going out and stretching yourself again right? But don't go back to basics. Basics is way too far. Have more faith in yourself. Have more confidence, more trust in who you are, that you know where your baseline is. You can come there, you can perform at that level, and then start stretching again. The other thing that I'll say about baseline is that baseline is all over the place for our life, okay? Our baseline for the property market might be here. Our baseline for our relationships might be here, 
Our baseline for our fitness may be here. Our baseline for anything else in life, it's all over the place. We have a baseline for every different aspect of our life. Be comfortable with that. It's not one baseline across all of life. And if something goes out of control, the rest of them are still good. It's just this one that goes out of control. That's the one we've got to focus on, build that back up, and life goes back on as normal. Okay, excellent. So guys, any guide, got any comments, questions? What's the biggest thing you learned out of here? What's your biggest takeaway, guys? Please type in the chat. Uh, Kathy says, my goodness, Derek, what a story. You're very courageous. You're one special man. We can learn a lot from you. Thank you so much, Kathy. I really appreciate that. Um, it's not something that I, I came into. Uh, it's as a result of talking to people like this that I actually, every time I speak, I, I learn something more about myself, learn something about other people that I can bring into what I'm learning. Um, so I'm very fortunate to be able to do this. Thank you, Kathy. How, how did it end? So you're there for three hours. What happened? Yeah, my, um, and, why, and why we was everyone stuck for three hours? Obviously, because he had a um, military-grade rifle and he was shooting at people, so people couldn't go in there, could they? Correct. My, the guys that I was with were pinned down because of what he was doing. We had to call for backup, uh, and backup essentially was three hours away. And I can go into that story in more detail because uh, there's always more detail in all these stories. Uh, but essentially, the, the backup was three hours away. Uh, when they got there, they were given a briefing that we haven't heard from Derek for two and a half hours. Um, we don't know whether he's alive or dead. We don't know whether you're going to pick, pick up a body or whether you're going to pick up Derek. There's a very good chance you may be shot and injured. You may be shot and killed. Um, if you don't think it's safe enough to go in, you need to say so now. Every one of those guys stepped up to the plate, put their lives on the line, literally put the lives on the line because he was still shooting rapidly all the time. Uh, and they came in under fire, picked me up, took me back out to a medical team. And the medical team who uh, treated me for 10 minutes were standing in direct line of fire as well. Bullets whizzing around their ears uh, as they were treating me. And if they hadn't treated me at that time, I would have been dead. The doctor estimated that I was 30 seconds from death. Wow. Wow. What brave people. These guys are so brave. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you for recognising that because that's really important. And I'm going to give you another little story about an even braver aspect to it. Um, and this relates to the team you have around you, the team you have around you and employing people like yourself to lead that team is absolutely essential because for the three hours I was lying on the ground, I knew that my mates would be prepared to put their lives on the line if they thought they could do it safely. Um, and that's what I, um, I relied on. That's what gave me the confidence to keep on fighting. I know the boys are going to be here. But for the 10 minutes while the doctor and the ambulance officers, nurses were treating me, uh, one of my mates from Star Group walked up to the doctor and said, don't worry about the bullets, don't worry about the shooter. I've got a flak vest on, so I'm going to be all right and I'm going to stand between you and the shooter, if the bullets come this way, I'll hit my flat vest. I'm going to be all right. And so will you. Wow. That, that was the type of team I had around me. Wow. What a team. That's amazing. And, and the team that you have around you in whatever life uh, challenges you have, don't have to be people that put their lives on the line, but they need to be able to look after you. And it's not about life threatening. It's about having George backing you in your investments that if something goes wrong, 
Will he have my back? Will he always be there? Will he be able to answer those questions? When you know you've got a team like that, it gives you the ability to stretch just that little bit further. This seems a little bit risky, but I've got a good team behind me. Yes, I think I can go there. And Derek, you've really nailed it with the team thing because, you know, anywhere in life to, to get good at business or investing or anything you, or sport, you need a team. Because the thing is, at school, we're taught the opposite. You're not, you're not allowed to copy of your neighbour. You're not allowed to collaborate. And everyone does their tests separately. And we're taught not to copy, not to collaborate. But in real life, it's the opposite. The more teamwork you have, the better you become in anything. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, and, and I've analysed this from every different aspect I can. I don't believe there's anything that we can do in life on our own. Everything we do relies on other people to help us, whether it's in a major way or just a minor way. There's nothing we can do on our own. And the sooner we realise that and go, actually, do you know something? The sooner I engage somebody else to help me, the more successful I'm going to be. Absolutely. And this came up recently because what's happened is building costs have gone up quite a bit and a lot of builders going broke. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had a few members reach out to me um, last month saying, George, you know, can you guarantee that the builders we're using aren't going to go broke? And I said, I can't do that because no one can, right? You know, because if I did say that, I'd be lying. But what I can guarantee is we've got an amazing team with lots of experience. And because you're part of this community, if that happens, we're going to help guide you and sort and sort it out. And that's the important part because no one guarantee anything, but we can certainly do the best we can. Absolutely, without a doubt. And I'm, as you were saying that, I'm just reading through some of these uh, comments as well. Yes, yes, I was going to read them out aloud so everyone can hear them. So Tanil said, thank you for your service. Thank you for spending your time with us to help us. Overwhelm isn't often discussed, so thank you. Thank you. One thing that stuck with me, go back to your comfort zone where you know you're 100% solid, not back to basics. I can't relate to that on many levels. I can relate to that on many levels. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, I really like that whole go back to your comfort zone because going back to the fundamentals is important. I'm just going to pick up on that because there's another point that I like to make is mm -hmm. that most people talk about you've got to be out of your comfort zone to grow. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you're right. In your comfort zone, you're comfortable, you're 100% reliable, you stay there. But in your comfort zone, there is no stress. As soon as you go out of there, there is a stressful situation. Sometimes it's the stress you want, okay? But sometimes it goes wrong. And if you just relate to, I've got to be out of my comfort zone to grow, and, I, and this stress, I must be growing through it. If you stay in the stressful situ situation too long, you'll go into burnout, right? And then you'll drop and you will go right back to basics. Yep. Be, be comfortable coming back to your comfort zone because this is, oh, my God, I've been out here so long. I need to relax, rest, replenish, re-energize, and then re-engage. So come back to your comfort zone. No stress here. Relax, enjoy life again, and then get back out there. Absolutely. Mental yeah, health no, is still important. No, I, to I totally agree. I think um, with um, getting out of your comfort zone, it's good to get out of your comfort zone, but not too much. So if yep. you're going to go to the gym, don't don't try to do a 180 kilo deadlift the first time round. You got to yep. slowly work your way up to your comfort zone and yep. stuff like that. Charmaine says, "I love the learns, learnings of this, as the principles can be applied to any area of our life. Mindset and emotional IQ can be our greatest superpower yep. if we give ourselves the time and dedication to evolve them." Absolutely agree with that. The mind, the mind is more important than anything else. Uh, if our mind's in the right place our body can get there as well. 
Absolutely, Derek. I think if you believe that you can do something, that's you've got much more chance of doing than if you don't believe it. Belief's the first part. Yeah. Um, Andrew Griffith said, I'm, sure. gonna, I'm gonna pick up on that as well, because I could pick, go, up, go, go. Yeah, yeah, pick up on so many things. I like to say dream, believe, persevere, and achieve. You've got to throw the perseverance in there. Without massive action, belief is just a belief. You need the massive action to follow it. That, yeah. I agree. Andrew Griffith says, George and the team is our flag fest. Thank you, Andrew. Yes, we are. I like it. I like it. Lisa Adams said, wow, Derek, you are so inspirational. Really goes to show the importance of a healthy mindset. Clay, I have gotten so much out of being part of the team that is positive property. Thank you, Clay. That's awesome. And Tanil said, so true. Come back out, stretch yourself and relax. We've spent too much time stretching without relaxing. Wow, that's good. Uh, look, um, it's, um, it's very interesting because, you know, that life and death situation we're in really shows you what's important. So how does it change you um, in regards to your goals, dream, aspirations, anything like that? I mean, I've heard once you face death, things change. You know, every, every day is a new day. I'd like to hear about more about that transformation. And George, I've heard that rumor as well. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't happen for me. And I say, unfortunately, tongue in cheek, um, because I've always been a risk manager. I've never been a risk taker. Mm -hmm. but now, that's a really hard thing to say when I'm in Star Group and we're taking risks every day, yep. okay? We put ourselves in risky situations. We go into high-risk arrests. We go into hostage seizure, praying with the military SAS for counter-terrorist uh, actions. It's a really risky environment. But to take a risk is to do no planning, right? And it's just to go out there and go, I know there's a risk. I'm going to have a crack at it anyway. Mm -hmm. I like to think that I manage risks. I like to look at my planning, my skills, my abilities, my training, uh, the people around me, the infrastructure, everything around it, and then I balance it. Do I have a good chance of success or no chance of success? So I like to manage the risk. And the higher the risk, the more the management. Okay, so it depends on where your risk tolerance is. If we'll, we'll turn it into a, a monetary uh, challenge, if you're risk tolerance is $10 and you go, I don't care if I risk $10, if I lose $10, that's fine. No planning, go for it, have a crack. If it goes wrong, you lose $10. Mm -hmm. Your risk tolerance may be $1,000, it may be $100,000. But for me, as soon as it starts getting more and more risky, right, the more and more planning I put into it. And it's everybody's gonna have their own risk tolerance. Absolutely. And that's part of the reason I designed this program to be very basic and very doable. Because with property, the shorter term your property goals, the riskier it is. So people that buy property for one year, over 90% of people lose money. After 10 years, 99% of people make money. So just by having holding power takes away the risk when it comes to property or investments like this. You know, but I agree um, with risk tolerance. It's uh, one of those things where, you know, when people ask me about Bitcoin, I said, well, get 1% of your income of your savings, chuck it in Bitcoin. If you make money, great. If you don't, you don't. And recently I read an article, over 50% of Bitcoin trades are actually fake. Oh, so, yeah, so it's the whole thing's fake and just manipulated by the people at the top making money. And that's the problem if, uh, with a lot of this sort of stuff because it's so complicated. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, and we talk about, well, just speaking about uh, risk tolerance, uh, I have $5,000 worth of 
Bitcoin investment in all sorts of different bits and pieces. And it goes up, but it mostly goes down at the moment. Um, but I sit there and I laugh at it because that's my, my risk tolerance, $5,000. I don't care. If I, if I make money out of it, great. If I don't, it's $5,000. Derek, I did the same thing. I, I put some cash into uh, cryptos saying, if I lose it, who cares? Funny enough, I did lose it because what happened was I lost my wallet, didn't know which wallet it was. And I had $80,000 in crypto I couldn't find. Oh, no. Anyway, and I was thinking, what an idiot. I'm thinking, you know what? Just shows. I should just stick to property. Anyway, so I'm online the other day shopping, and they talk about Trust Wallet. And I realized I found my wallet on my phone. Because I, because I, it was on my phone, but I just couldn't find the wallet. I typed in wallet, Bitcoin, crypto. Oh, right, yeah. I didn't know what word it was, but I found my 80 grand. Yes, I'm 80 grand richer. <laughs> actually 65 grand richer because it's sort of dropped down a little bit since <laughs> and in actual fact depending on how you look at that that's a $160,000 turnaround because I know, it is thousand dollars down exactly. now you're $80,000 back up again so yep. exactly so shopping pays it certainly does yes yeah. so I was yeah. very fortunate but I'm, in, I'm fortunate in the place where even if I did lose 80 grand in Bitcoin it didn't matter and that's the thing. Yeah, if that's you right. Put, if you put your money that you care about in Bitcoin, you'd be crazy. Oh, absolutely. It, it's I call it play money. It's just play money. Throw it in there. Um, where I start making serious investments, I do a lot more planning. That's right. Because I, I I I say this thing. Have you ever heard of this saying? Safe as Bitcoin. <laughs> no. They say safe as uh, what is it? Anyone? Anyone got it? Safe as houses. That's right. Safe as houses. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, guys, any last questions before we end tonight's meeting? Bricks and mortar, houses, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If, uh, if anybody would uh, like to ask questions that they don't want to put up here, I'm very happy to take emails. I'm sure George will supply you with uh, my email address. Yeah, what, what's your email address, Derek? I'll just type it in here. I'm my email address is Derek, Derek at DerekMcManus.com. I can type it in if you like. Okay, perfect. That'd be great. And you've also written a book, haven't you? Uh, I'm partway through writing the book. I um, I did actually write, well, let me just get the spelling right on my own name. Mm-hmm. It's always handy. And... There we go. Um, I did write a book called Fighting the Fear Factory. Um, I'm not putting that in print anymore. I looked at it. I wrote it many years ago. And when I looked at it again recently, I've gone, oh, my gosh, that's embarrassing. But it generally is. Whenever you put your first effort into something and then you look at it later, you go, oh, my gosh, how could I have done that? I knew that was always going to be the case. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that one's not in print. That'll be um, revived, refreshed. Uh, But I'm actually... Uh, putting together a book of the story. So it'll have all those details that I've just spoken about, plus a lot more depth. Yes, I'm sure um, the group and I would be very keen to find out when you launch your book, because we'd love to, um, I'd like to get a copy for sure myself. Thank you. Also, I've noticed that you're a torchbearer for the Olympics. Ah, yes. Nice. Yeah, back there. Yep. Um, Very nice. uh, Yeah, back in 2000, I ran with the torch back then. Um, And it, you know, pride of place. Uh, and the um, helicopter here, yep. that's a, uh, a model of the helicopter that I was uh, rescued in. Mm-hmm. It's a one-tenth, one-tenth scale. 
the uh, the doctor that actually rescued me, he spent a lot of time in these. He went to a place in Europe uh, and they created 10 unique models uh, and he passed one of them on to me. I was That's very, awesome. very That's awesome. Tanil says, how did you manage work and family? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, being, being in Star Group requires so much time, dedication, focus, um, that you know, I, there's no two ways about it. I had to spend a lot of time doing that. And I wouldn't be successful unless I was able to spend all that time and focus. But my main priority was my family, right? Yep. When I'm at work, I've got to focus on work. When I'm at home, I focus on home. Oh, and we we didn't go into the um, the the life changing type uh, things as well. Um, being the fact that my family is the most important thing to me for the three hours that I was lying on the ground, it wasn't thinking about oh, listen, I'm applying for a promotion. Is that ever going to be uh, liable? You know, realistic now? Will I be able to get my new car? Will I be able to do X Y Z? It was just. I want to get back to my children and be yeah. able to interact with my children, right? And that was the one driver that gave me the focus, the determination to fight to live. Um, and so I, and when I was looking at going back to work, I had to make a choice between going back to work or family. And if I can get both, it would be great. Mm. So I had a conversation with my wife and we knew that I was going to be okay going back to work and she supported me going back to work. So that was always good. My daughter, who was four at the time of the shooting and five when I made a return to work on part-time, started having sleepless nights. Yeah. And all that sort of stuff. Um, and we had to go away and get some advice from a psychologist to work with her and find out what's going on in her mind. Um and fortunately, she came very good. She was very accepting. And part of the, part of the reason she accepted was because I was completely transparent with her and open and honest at her yeah. level of cognition, right? Yeah. I didn't try to hide anything. I was completely open about how I was prepared and what I was thinking and all the rest of it. And that if she was not comfortable, I would find a different job, right? My passion. Yes. Wow. My passion was Star Group. I wanted to go back there, but my family was more important. Now, if my family supported me and I couldn't go back to Star Group and I didn't go back to Star Group, I may have died in a different way because that's where my passion was. Yeah. If my family couldn't handle it, then I would find a different passion because my family was my number one passion. That's what it was before the shooting. That's what it was after the, after the shooting. My perspectives on life have not changed. I don't go out and look at the sun and look at the roses and go, oh my gosh, I'm so glad to still be able to see you. Any different to what I did before the shooting because I yeah. did those things back then, right? I love nature. I love my family. I love enjoying life. I, I, I accept that I struggle through life, but I've traveled to places like India and Bangladesh and places like that. And I see that there are people out there that are struggling a lot worse than me, but they're still really happy. Mm. And so um, I'm just happy with where I am, what I have right now, while still aspiring to have more. I aspire to have more, but I don't lose sleep over not having it right now. 
So essentially you work hard and play hard and try and do it in equal portions. Is that sort of like a little bit of a summary? Yeah, absolutely. My life is about enjoyment. That's it, period. Yeah, I, yeah. I have chosen my career. I have chosen my family. I have chosen almost everything in my life uh, because I enjoy it. I want to enjoy my life, but I don't do it as a risk uh, taker. I do it as a risk manager. And, yeah. and that is as much risking my heart as it is my physical body. I'm sure a lot of appreci people appreciate what you've done for them over the years. So, um, yeah, yeah, we all appreciate you coming tonight. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure, Neil. Thank you. Well, one last comment. Great chat, Derek. Absolute legend and very insightful. Thank you, Louise and David. Yep, Louise and David very informative. So, um, Derek, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for um, um, coming and joining our group tonight. Our, we're, 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 our tribe is called Freedom Tribe because we fight for freedom. I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, and that is such a great thing to aspire for. Absolutely. Because that freedom comes in many different forms. Yep, that's right. That's correct. So thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for joining me. I'll see everyone next Thursday night. Derek, have a great week. And thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for uh, facilitating, Tanim. Thank you. No worries. Good night. Yeah. Good night. Good night.